Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and share the Word of God with you. This past Wednesday, we had um, the first week of our study, and it was awesome. I'm so happy that so many of you showed up, and many of you also joined us on Zoom. And I look forward to this coming week on Wednesday night where we get to see and look through the Word, where we see and God teaching us what the necessary indicators of salvation or new birth, what evidences we see when we are saved. And that also being said, after this, we have a week break, and then we're going to go into a season again of smaller groups. So I encourage you to sign up uh, just as you did last season, and we have our leaders being prepped and preparing through prayer and study as well. Let's start today with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the last few chapters, we have been going over the divisions in the church. The church in Corinth had a severe problem in division. This is not in an uncommon problem in the church, and I believe many churches, even today, have problems of division. And I wondered as well for us, is this inherently a problem for us in CGS? And perhaps not, but also perhaps in some ways. You know, I recall that there are lots of votes cast in our membership meetings, and most are unanimous. Uh, now, in here, and of, of course in everywhere else, there will always be people who are divisive in nature. They are not Christ-like, and they are immature in their faith. But barring the minority there, the question I was asking myself is, are we just voting for conformity's sake? Or, just as we've read in the last two months now, do we believe and say the same things? Do we really believe and say the same things as the Bible is exhorting the church to do? And this is why the Word of God is so important, because it will do surgery in the body and make sure that even if it's a tiny tumor, that we will be able to identify it, and if it is indeed malignant, remove it. 
And the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church, was basically divided over two areas. But Paul tells us that these two areas are actually really one big area. It's sarkanos. It's carnality. It's because we are people of the flesh, not pneumaticos, people of the spirit. But these two areas are mentioned over and over again in chapters 1 all the way to chapter 4 because, well, the Corinthian church, they were severely divided over them. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Paul attacking what? The exaltation of human wisdom. The exaltation of human wisdom Paul is attacking. And he's saying, why do you still follow the ways of the world? Why are you still subscribing to secular ideologies and their so-called solutions? When have they ever worked? In chapter 1, verse 20b, it says, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In chapters 3 and 4, we see Paul attacking the exaltation of human leaders. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Why are you still looking at human leaders as your Savior? Don't you know that even the servants of God are exactly that? They're servants. And in chapter 3, we saw that the carnality and immaturity of exalting human leaders, what it really did, it displayed their lack of understanding of what servants really are. And that would lead to, in the beginning of chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, if you don't know what servants are, then you don't know what ministry is. And that would lead to verses 10 through 18, which we got last week. And then you won't know what true reward is because ultimately what you don't know is who you are in verse 17 and 18 and more importantly you don't know who God is because don't you know that you are God's temple and his spirit dwells within you and now we get to today we get to what we refer to as the inclusio or the summary slash recap of the last few chapters. Any good teacher knows that a good summary is important, especially if you want to use this as a basis to move on to the next point. When you watch TV shows and they have a part one to be concluded, to be continued in the next episode, the next episode when you watch, you have a, a few minutes of a recap. And that's exactly what an inclusio is. And Paul is doing exactly that in these verses that were read this morning. In this inclusio, we are going to see the remedy, the remedy to the division that the church faces. So here are some proper views to have if you are going to get rid of what is dividing you and what is trying to divide you. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let no one deceive himself. Some people thought that they were wise by attaching themselves to a particular teacher. That was the standard of the age. You made groups, and you identified these groups by saying, well, I follow blankety-blank. But teachers represented schools of thought. And I believe now the word and the term that we use 
are movements. We call them movements. So if you are doing these things, if you are following movement after movement, or you feel like this is the ultimate movement, then Paul is saying, don't deceive yourself. You are not wise according to the standards of God. So if you think you are wise, the Bible tells you to become a fool, and the actual Greek word here is moron, so that you may become wise. Become a moron so that you can become wise. If there is going to be unity, we have to stop deceiving ourselves by exalting our own wisdom. You know, a lot of division would be eliminated if you, number one, had a proper view of yourself. You can know a lot of things in this life. Don't get me wrong. You can attain a lot of knowledge, too. You can study to be a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, and we have a few of those in here. You can attain knowledge and how to make a shoe, all the way to putting a car engine together. But in this same manner or method, you cannot, you cannot attain salvation you cannot attain the knowledge of God, and you cannot attain the principles of holy living, a.k.a. the Christian life. So that is why Paul is saying, don't deceive yourselves. You don't know anything about these things. And if you want to know, then first become a moron. Division is inevitable when people use their own wisdom to set up church life. It's inevitable if we do church life when using our own wisdom. When we think things like, you know the session? It's really just a model of the corporate boardroom. Are you kidding me? That's why there's division. You're just copying the ways of the world. And when has any way of the world lasted? Haven't they all crumbled down? Time after time again, even on Saturdays, we are seeing kingdoms and empires will go up, but they will crumble. They'll rise up and they will fall. And then there is one, one kingdom that will last for all eternity. And that is not the kingdom of the world. The church must create an atmosphere where we submit to the word of God. It must make it known that there will be no instance of human wisdom superseding the word of God. And you might think and, you know, ask then, how can you have a place where human wisdom is elevated above all else? You know how you have a place where human wisdom is elevated above the other things that are important like what it shows us in the Bible, is you don't believe the Bible. That's how. You don't preach the Bible. That's how. The only reason why the Bible would ever be used is to get your own agenda communicated. A leader would look around and looks like, looks like we need a little humility here. So let's see what Bible passages can support my idea of humility. You know, when you think like that, 
especially if you're a leader in the church, if you think like that, what it really means is you don't believe in biblical authority and inerrancy. You subject the Bible to your own understanding and wisdom. You're pushing the Bible to support your own agenda, and that kind of humility is false humility. And you'll come up with things like, oh, I need to be kind. That's what it means. That's what the Bible ultimately teaches, right? We need to be kind. So let's all try harder to do one nice thing this week. And while saying things like that, you neglect the clear imperative scripture that you must die to yourself. That's what the scriptures command believers to do. And I've heard some give pushback that it's hard to accept that the Bible doesn't have error. And if that were true then, number one, how do I know which areas of the Bible I can trust? Especially, especially when the heart is deceitful above all else. Or are we also going to conveniently reject that verse too? And in fact, the Huffington Post does. They actually have an article specifically titled, Why Your Heart Is Not Always Deceitful Above All Else. Boom, there it is. The Bible isn't authoritative. It's not completely true for me and my life. And I'll put up posts like, Why Your Heart Is Not Always Deceitful Above All Else, when the Bible specifically says, The heart is deceitful above all else. How do I know which areas of the Bible I can trust if I believe that there's error? Number two, then who gets to decide which of that is error and what kind of criteria will you use? And this is something that we have been going over and over and over again in this church. Only one book is absolutely essential to save us, to equip us, to obey God's will, and give us the knowledge of God. Only one book is absolutely essential to save us, to equip us to obey God's will, and give us the knowledge of who God is. Only one book has undiluted truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and only one book serves as our ultimate and final authority in all that it affirms. That book, of course, is the Bible, God's holy scriptures. And where the word of God is proclaimed, there can be no division in these areas. So, if you want true wisdom, you have to admit that you're a moron. It's the opposite of the world today. It really is. To be intellectual, you have to know how to criticize. I've learned it in my undergrad years and in my postgrad years. It's called criticism. That's how you show your intellectual prowess. We literally call the different forms of scholarship and analyses now criticisms. We see that there is literary criticism, textual criticism, historical criticism, and now cultural criticism, and so on and so forth. And how ironic is that? How ironic that we think intellectualism is criticizing. Are you kidding me? Your four-year-old can criticize you. That doesn't make them smarter than you. 
Give me the solution. Give me the solution. And the Bible gives it to us. We are called to be humble and humble enough to submit to the revelation and the authority of God. And it is indeed hard to teach someone who is unteachable. And the only way to be wise then is to confess that you're a fool and turn to the word of God. And this has been seen to a portion but never completed in the ways of the world like Quintilian, the great Roman orator. Quintilian would say about his students, they would doubtless have become excellent scholars if they had not been so fully persuaded of their own scholarship. Before Quintilian, there's Socrates. It's better, and this is what he basically says in a nutshell, it's better, not, it's better to not have knowledge and know that you do not have knowledge than to not have knowledge and to think that you do have knowledge. But even before Socrates, there's Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Jesus comes into the world and flips the script by saying, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry. You want to be rich? Start by knowing that you are poor. You want to be powerful? Start by being humble. You want to know what it's really like to be truly full? Then hunger and thirst for the things of God. If you think you're wise, you only deceive yourself. You can flatter yourself by getting multiple PhDs, but you would be badly deceived. If I had to choose four elders, and it was between four PhDs who didn't know the word versus four people who only graduated high school but knew deeply the word of God, there would be no contest. There was this one guy who didn't go to school, knew only how to fish, and then he would go on a stump to an entire board of scholars the most educated scholars in the land and completely baffle them. They would not be able to answer. This is shown in Acts 4. But this is why so many churches are messed up now. It's because we have leadership operating on human wisdom, the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God shown to us in the Word of God. And of course, I'll just say... Uh, I am not saying that I only want morons on the session. I am not saying there are only morons in the session. It would be lovely to have PhDs. But most importantly, we want people who know and love the Word of God above all else. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Worldly wisdom destroys churches. They will not last. I will say it again. Worldly wisdom destroys churches. They will not last. The eternal things do not last with temporal solutions. And to think that is insanity. 
The things of God do not last with the solutions of the world. And again, Paul gives biblical backings for this argument. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That's from Job chapter 5, verse 13. And interestingly enough, he uses Eliphaz's correct words that were applied incorrectly, but Paul applies it correctly here. And I love that. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and Paul does exactly that by quoting Job 5.13. And if you can't see how ironic and amazing that is, it just read Job. But he also quotes Psalm 94.11. He knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. You know, if you look at Psalm 94.11, it's just men. He knows the thoughts of men. But here, Paul elaborates and says, The wise, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Why would he say this? It shows and it emphasizes that even the wisest of men in this world will be shown to be impotent, futile in front of the Almighty. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Stop boasting about which movement, which secular movement you follow. Stop boasting about which person you follow. You know, these meant so much to the Corinthians. Paul starts to dismantle their intellectual pride brick by brick and here is the climactic reason why all things are yours not some things not a few things not even most things all things all means all why are you bickering about which party you belong to which movement you're following which teacher you follow because all things are yours, whether Paul, the great teacher, the master builder, the man full of zeal who will run the race to win it for the living God, or Apollos, the great orator, the, the, the expert in the Old Testament who could debate any scholar of that age and emerge victorious. Or even Cephas, the disciple who saw the transfiguration, who broke bread with the Lord himself, the leader of the apostles. All things are yours. How foolish would it be to say then that we as a church only follow Paul? Not John, not Peter. Not, excuse me, not Matthew, just Paul. How impoverished would we be as a church if we say we only follow certain teachers in the Bible? <clears throat> when I was young, I would like a particular food. And this shows me how, you know, how immature I was and still have these tendencies. I would like a particular kind of food and eat only that. I would tell my sister, this food is bad for you. And then I would put it next to my plate. Uh, Eunice, spam is actually really bad. It's actually really bad, but I didn't care. But I would convince her spam is not good for you. And I would try to hog it up all for myself. Spam is amazing, though. I mean, if you don't know, you don't know. Like, in America, 
that spam is only in America. That's why, anyway, but yeah, you can't get it anywhere else. Like, but people ship it. Uh, but anyway, my mom, she would constantly tell me, constantly, every dinner, she would tell me to eat all the food at the table, not just that one item. Because you lose out on the diversity and goodness of the entire meal prepared for you when you just constantly eat that one item only. It's all yours. Why are you limiting yourself to one biblical teacher? Don't you realize that all teachers who belong to Christ belong to you? How ridiculous is that picture if a grown man only ate one kind of food? He would be malnourished. Why then are you living in squalor when all things are yours? And here I'm going to make this note and caveat that it's important that we make this distinction between a good teacher and a bad teacher. This is taken for granted here, but Paul in his letters often goes after and calls out teachers who are no good. He hands them over to the devil. These teachers do not teach the whole counsel of God. They do not live according to the faith that is professed, and they lead others astray. So no, not every teacher who claims to be of Christ is actually of Christ. And hopefully by now you know what the criteria of a good teacher is in the Bible. And this also doesn't mean that you would travel from church to church either. There is a basic assumption that the multiplicity of the teachers were all teachers of that particular local assembly. He mentions Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. It's good, it is good that you read books, listen to sermons from other godly people, but the context, I want to talk to you about the context of these verses, is the local assembly. And, of course, this may be an obvious point, but I believe it does need to be said. So Paul, Apollos, and even Peter, they are yours. Why would you just eat off the corner of the table when the whole table is yours, instead of nourishment, then you'd get malnourishment. Instead of enrichment, you'd get impoverishment. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see what the Word of God is telling us when they call us fellow heirs with who? With Christ. Well, that's kind of crazy, right? Let's continue. In John chapter 17, verse 22, this is what Jesus prays and says, The glory, and he's praying to the Father, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Who's them? He's talking about the church, the disciples of Christ. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one even as we are one. This is about us having it all, why are we divided? Shouldn't we be united instead? But Paul doesn't stop there. It's not only the teachers that belong to you. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This is talking about cosmos, the world, all of creation, 
The world is yours. It was made for us to enjoy, and it is ours in Christ. That's crazy. There will be a time, the, world say, the word says, where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine our one or two-year-olds leading like a little parade of lions, wolves, sheep, calves, all together? The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's in Isaiah chapter 11. Why are you fighting over things right now? All things are yours. All things are yours. Not only that, not only that, life is yours. And not just any old life, but an abundant life. There is no FOMO in this life because you have it in full. I have come to give life and give life abundantly. You have life in full. So why would you be anxious and fight with each other? All things are yours. And in case you thought, wow, is Paul a prosperity preacher right now? Because it doesn't stop there. Death is yours. Yep, you're going to die. It's yours. I'm giving it to you right now. No, uh, death is yours. You're going to die. This is where the prosperity gospel falls short and falls short in the most absolute way. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And yes, that includes death. Death is also yours. Death will work for our good. This is why we can confess to die is gain. Because death belongs to Christians. And it doesn't stop there. The present, here and now, and the future are yours. Even the pain and suffering that we're going through right now, yes, you have it all. A common phrase used by the world today, especially more now because of this pandemic, I'm hearing it, but it's been used. Is We, we can imagine this news anchor coming out and giving like their monologue. We live in uncertain times, right? We live in uncertain times. Whether it's in this pandemic or in the 60s where, there were, where we were at war or going even further back in history where humanity faced other wars and diseases, it was, we live in uncertain times. But for the Christian, that is not the case. We live in certain times. The times have been given to us. Even the present and future are working for our good, our benefit. The picture that you see here is that all these things are in service to you. They are working for your benefit. 
In James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pain and suffering serve you. Romans chapter 8 Verse 37, no, in all these things, what are we? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul ends with three short statements in a sort of doxological but also pedagogical statement. All are yours. It points to Christian liberty. You are Christ's, pointing to the Christian's responsibility. And Christ is God's, pointing to Christian purpose. All are yours. Stop acting poor when you are rich. You are Christ's. You belong to Christ. The liberty that you have allows you now to live a life that service, this service befitting the saints, the holy ones of God. You can now live as holy ones of God. Christ is God's. This statement of subordination is to reflect what? The fulfillment of God's will. It was God's will to save you through his son, and that is why and how you have all things. And if all things belong to you, why are you still bickering? Why are you still fighting? Why is there division in the church? What the word of God is showing us then is that your view is too small. You can't see the whole table. You're just looking at this corner. But where should we place our view now? As you look across the table, you see the giver, the cook, the creator, the gift giver. And you place your view on God, and he shows us a better way still. This is why I'm excited to go through 1 Corinthians. Yes, but the entire word of God with you all. With this, we know that God is giving us everything that we absolutely need so that our testament, our testimony, what we confess will be my cup overflows. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. We thank you, God, that you give us understanding through your Holy Spirit and you give us knowledge according to the word of God. We ask God that now we will be able to submit to your word, submit to you. Help us to be morons when we thought we were once wise by following the ways of the world. And, O oh God, teach us your ways. Humble us so that we could see the riches of you, the life that we have with you, 
the eternity that you have promised us together. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that has been given to us today, the promises that God gives us, and have we been acting accordingly? And if not, let's take time to repent and turn back from our evil ways and turn back to God as the word exhorts us to. Let's pray.